Have you ever heard the name Glenn Scotty Wolf? Anybody know that name? Glenn Scotty Wolf is famous for something. He's famous for having the most monogamous marriages ever. You want to take a guess at how many? Try 29. 29 times, people, Glenn has been married. Here's the sad part. He's actually a Baptist minister. Isn't that crazy? Now, his last marriage was to a woman named Linda Wolf. She just so happens to have the record for the most uh, monogamous marriages ever for a woman. She's been married 23 times. Their marriage was kind of a publicity stunt. But there's one, one thing for sure. These two people, Glenn and Linda, they're really good. I mean, they are pros at falling in love, right? Staying in love, not so much. The longest marriage in the world, the longest marriage in the world goes to Herbert and Zelma Fisher. They were married, catch this, for 86 years. 86 years. They got married when they were three. And uh, now they had to be married when they were teens. He passed away when he was like 105. And so they were married for 86 years. Could you imagine being married for 86 years? That's unbelievable. Well, today we're in week two of our series called Staying in Love. If you weren't here with us last week, we opened this series uh, with a video message from Andy Stanley at North Point Church in Atlanta. And Andy said, you know, falling in love is easy. It basically requires a pulse, but staying in love is much more difficult. It takes a purpose and a plan and intentionality. We all want to stay in love forever, right? But the question is how? How do you keep from drifting apart in marriage and ending up just coexisting together. How do you keep, how do you stay in love and keep from your marriage ending in divorce? The question is, how do you stay in love year after year and decade after decade? Well, if you remember last week's message, Stanley gave us an answer to that question. And the answer is this, if you want to stay in love forever, you have to make love a what? Verb. verb. Yeah, I thought somebody was going to say a lot. Um, <laughs> No, make love a verb. And so if you were here last week, we gave you this card. And uh, on this card, there's a passage of Scripture on it. And we ask you to read that this, week, this past week. And we ask you to answer some of the questions that were on the back of this card. I hope some of you took us up on that challenge. But the passage on this card is from the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in Philippi, and in this letter, Paul addresses a number of issues, but in chapter 2, he zeroes in on the importance of unity among the believers. And so this passage is really addressing all relationships in general, and so regardless if you're married or not, this is something, this is a passage that we can all learn from. But today, we're going to specifically apply this passage to the context of the marriage relationship. So follow along as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not only looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. I'm so excited to preach this message, I'm getting choked up. Just kidding. So, 
this passage in Philippians 2 is just rich with insight. It really is. And there are a number of different lessons that we could pull just from those few verses. But today, I want to show you three steps that we can take towards making love a verb and, and really remodeling your marriage if that's at a place where you, where you need to do. Step one is this. Treat your spouse, treat your spouse as more important than you. Step number two is express interest in the things that interest them. And step number three, put your relationship ahead of your rights. If you have your Bibles with you, you may want to turn to Philippians 2. We're going to walk through this passage verse by verse and kind of unpack some of these details. But before we do that, I would love to just stop and pray. Will you please pray with me? Father, I love you. We love you. And we are so thankful for you and your love for us. I love I love the way you love us. I love the way you take good care of us and you provide for us. Father, I th- thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the, or having a source of truth, God. Thank you for giving us the scriptures. Father, thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. And I pray that as we study your word, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see what, what you want us to see? And would you open our ears to hear what you want us to hear? Lord, I believe that every person sitting here this morning, that you have something to say to each one of us. So, Lord, would you just speak to us this morning? Would you strengthen and encourage our hearts, Lord? And maybe most of all, Jesus, would you glorify your name? And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. All right, let's begin by looking at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Paul says. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Some translations actually translate that phrase, do nothing from selfish ambition or do nothing from selfishness. Because the the Apostle Paul here is speaking to the attitude or the motivation of our hearts. What's the source of your attitude in the context of your relationship? He's addressing the desires of our hearts. When it comes to making love a verb, if you start from the place of selfishness, you're in trouble. You can't make yourself the center of the relationship and make love a verb. When we want to be in control, when we want to be in power, when we want to have the advantage in our relationship, when we want the relationship to kind of tilt in our favor a little bit, we are starting from a place of selfishness. If selfishness is the engine driving your marriage and your relationships, it's going to cause problems. James chapter 4, verse 1 says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Simple truth. Most of the problems in your marriage, and I don't have to be a marriage counselor or sit down and talk to you about this, most of the problems in your marriage and challenges you face and and most of the problems and challenges in my marriage comes, comes when we allow our selfish desires to influence and control the way we treat our spouses. Now look back at verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, in humility, value others above yourselves. Paul says, Don't allow your selfish desires to influence and control the way you treat others. Instead, humble yourself. Have a modest opinion of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think that your needs are more important than someone else's needs. No, lower yourself and value others above yourself. Make your spouse more important than yourself. Make it about your spouse, not about you. Put your spouse at the center of your marriage. 
And that's the first step we can take towards making love a verb. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down? Treat your spouse as more important than you. Treat your spouse as more important than you. Now, have you ever been around somebody that's more important than you? Think about this with me. I want you to think about a time when you were in the context where the person you were around was more important than you. Now, I don't mean they, like, they had more intrinsic value than you as a human being. For example, have you ever been to a wedding where you weren't the bride or the groom? Right? Most of us would say, yes, we've all attended a wedding where we weren't the ones getting married. Did you notice how people stood in line for hours to talk to them? They, no one cared to talk to you. You ever notice that? Or how about this? Uh, have you ever noticed that when the bride walked into the room, everyone stood and focused on her? And when you walked in the room, nobody blinked an eye? Why is that? Well, because in that particular context, you're not the most important person in the room. They are. Or how about a birthday party? My son turns two today. His birthday is today. Every time someone throws a birthday party, we throw a birthday party for someone, everyone gives their attention to that particular person. They're the most important person. They're the center of our attention. Everyone brings them gifts. Everybody sings to them. And at least for that party, everybody yields and focuses their attention on the individual who's the most important person in the room at the time, right? Or how about having a baby? My wife's pregnant. Uh, we're expecting baby number four in August, and uh, excited about that. This will be the fourth time I've been in the labor and the delivery room, and I can just promise you, in that labor and delivery room, nobody cares about me, right? <laughs> all the attention and all the focus is given towards Paige and that baby. And then after the baby arrives... People don't call up and say, hey, Kevin, how are you doing, right? No one cares about how I'm doing. People want to know, how's Paige doing? How's the baby doing? You can always tell a first-time dad when you call them up and they're at the hospital and you say, hey, how are things going? And they're like, man, I'm doing great. Things are good. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'm not, I'm not talking about you, okay? I know you're doing great. You didn't do anything but sit and watch, okay? How's your wife doing? How's the baby doing, right? Because at, the, at that point in time, your wife, the baby, they're the most important ones in the room. Paul is saying in Philippians that that's how you're to treat someone you love, you love, especially your spouse. That making love a verb is, is about treating someone as though they're more important than you. It's saying, I'm going to relate to you as though you're more valuable than me. So let's make it our goal every day in the context of marriage and in relationships in general. That in every situation, in every conversation, in every circumstance, and in every interaction that you treat your spouse, you relate to your spouse as though they're more important and more valuable to you, than you. I want you to think about your most valued possession. Okay, what's your most valued possession? Something you take care of and you treat it differently than the other stuff that you have. You, you're very protective of it. Uh, it's special to you. You treat it with a sense of awe. Uh, some guys, some of you all, you store it in the garage and you wash it once a week, you know? What is that thing that you treat with a sense of awe? That's what we do at the beginning of our relationships when we're falling in love, right? Oh, he called me. Oh. Here's a picture of her. Oh. Listen to what he said. Oh. The first time you heard him snore, you were like, oh, that's so cute. The first time you saw her without makeup on, she, oh, you're so naturally beautiful. What happens? After time passes, we begin to lose some of that sense of awe. And, and some of us, some of us, some of us begin to think that, well, maybe, maybe if I go back and find someone new, I can have that sense of awe back again. 
See, because in the beginning, it, it, there's so much emotion and passion, and that we, we treat her or treating him with a sense of awe kind of comes naturally. But people who stay in love over the long haul, they learn how to keep the sense of awe with intentionality. They make the willful decision to treat their spouse as if they really are the most important person in their life. In the beginning, your relationship is so precious and you're very tender with it and you treat it as special and you think to yourself, I don't want to mess this relationship up. Well, people who stay in love over the long haul, they keep that perspective. They keep that attitude toward their spouse. They keep treating their spouse with a sense of great value. And they make the decision. They develop the lifestyle of making love a verb and treating him or her as more valuable than their self. That's how you stay in love. That's how marriage gets better and richer through the years. Let's look back at Philippians chapter 2 again, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. Why don't you look at that phrase, not looking to your own interest. Where are you looking? Where are you looking in your marriage? Where's your focus? Are you focused on your needs and your interest? Or are you looking to the needs and the interest of your spouse? One of the key fruits or one of the results of valuing others as more important than yourself, of treating others as more important than you, is that you don't only, you don't only look to your interest, but you begin to look to and care about the interest of others. You interest yourself in the things that are of interest to them. Now, this is kind of a challenge Challenge for me, personally. I don't know about you, but I'm mostly interested in the things that are interesting to me, right? I mean, I'm naturally interested in the things that are interesting to me. And so it's difficult at times to interest yourself in things that are not interesting to you. But the Apostle Paul says, make love a verb and learn to express, learn, learn to express interest in the things that are of interest to the person you want to stay in love with. That's step number two you can take today. Express interest in the things that interest them. Now, we know how to do this. You know how to do this. Because, again, we did this when we first fell in love, right? When you were first falling in love with someone, you found out what they were into, and suddenly you were into it too, right? I mean, it may be temporarily, but you were into it. So maybe they were, uh, uh, they were into exercise. All of a sudden, you love to exercise. Maybe they love the outdoors. All of a sudden, you love the outdoors too. Maybe they were, uh, they, they were into sports, and all of a sudden you love sports too. Maybe they, they liked a certain kind of music, and all of a sudden you, you decided you loved that music too. This happened with my wife and I. Okay, so when we first started dating, I liked to listen to country music. I'm from Kentucky, y'all. I like country music. And I remember asking her early on, hey, do you like country music? And she said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I like country music. I like country music. She even gave me a couple of so-called favorite country music artists. But shortly after we were married, I noticed this pattern develop in our marriage. Every time we got in the car, I would turn the radio to the country music station, and she would kind of lovingly say, hey, can we listen to something else? And this happened over and over again. So finally one day I said, hey, honey, I, I thought you liked country music. Do you like country music? Oh, no, I don't like country music at all. I can't stand it. <laughs> Wait a second. I thought you told me you like country music. She, she says, oh, no, no. She tells me, she says to me that she doesn't remember necessarily saying that specifically. So I had to ask her permission to tell that story. And, uh, and she said yes, 
But I have to tell you the other side of the coin that I kind of did this to her too. And so since she's in the room, I'll go ahead and tell you my, my side. So I kind of did the same thing to her. Early on, we're all in love, you know, we're just, just exploring each other and learning all about each other and what, what we like and what we don't like and interested in. And one thing she, she says is, hey, she says, hey, I want, I want you to know something about me. What's that? I want you to know that I don't really like to clean the house. I don't like house cleaning. Like, I don't enjoy scrubbing the kitchen floors, and I'm not one that just enjoys cleaning the bathrooms. And, of course, I, so madly in love, stepped up and said, oh, honey, I love cleaning. <laughs> I said, I will, here's, and I did say this. I remember saying this. She reminds me of this often. I said, and I quote, I will always clean the bathrooms for us. I haven't really followed through on that commitment very well. I'll just be really honest. And so, like, when you're falling in love, it's easy to interest yourself in the things that interest them. But it's harder to stay there, right, as time goes on. But we can do this. This is not that difficult. If your husband is interested in sports, wives, you don't have to become a sports fanatic. But you can ask from time to time how his team is doing or occasionally watch a game with him. Husbands, if your wife likes gardening, you don't have to become a green thumb yourself, but you can express some interest in gardening. You can offer to help her from time to time and ask her, what is it you're doing? Why, is it, why do you do that? And seek to, to learn about what she's interested in. The thing is, we have to make the decision. Am I going to look only to my interest or am I going to look to the interest of my spouse? Am I going to discover what they're interested in and move in that direction? That's what you do when you want to stay in love. And here's, the war here's a little warning. And you've seen this, and I've, I've seen it too. There are couples who never do this. And 10, 15, 20, 25 years go by. And what happens is they're 30 years into marriage, and he has his hobbies, and he does his thing, and he has his own little world, and she's disconnected from it. And she has her hobbies, and she has her own world, and he's totally disconnected from it. And sometimes that works okay. Some of you all can relate to that picture. But the enemy... The enemy can use that. He can use that as a foothold to get into your marriage and begin to divide you and separate you. So interest yourself in the things that interest your spouse. And it's not just your, their interest. You need to be concerned about the things that concern your spouse. When was the last time you asked your spouse, hey, honey, what's stressing you out these days? What's weighing heavy on your heart and mind? If I ask you that right now, could you answer that? Could you tell me? What's been kind of consuming your spouse's heart and mind in, in this season of life? Do you have compassion for your spouse? Or do you often say, well, I, I just don't see why that's such a big deal. I'm learning, at least in my marriage, that it doesn't matter if it's, if it's, if it's a concern to me. If it's, if it's a concern to Paige, then I need to make it a concern of mine as well. If it's stressing her out, then I need to pay attention, have compassion, and, and begin to connect with her in that stress. If you want to stay in love, you've got to make love a verb. First, by treating your spouse as more important than you. And second, expressing interest in the things that interest them. Now, at this, this point, you may be thinking, okay, Kevin, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Uh, I, I agree with this, but boy, I haven't really seen a picture of this. I haven't really seen this modeled in my life very much. See, when it comes to love relationships, we usually take our cue from our parents, don't we? Or here's what we'll do. We'll either say, hey, I want to be like my parents. My parents were a model that I can follow. Or sometimes we go in the exact opposite direction. I don't want to be anything like my parents, and so we, we just we say, well, I don't want, I'm, going to, I'm going to go completely opposite direction. And that's not really any healthy of a strategy, not a very healthy strategy either. 
Or we decide this. We decide we're going to take our cue from culture or we're going to take our marriage cues from the people around us or from friends or, or maybe from some older couples that, that, that are in our life. And while we certainly can and we should learn from other couples who are modeling godly marriages and biblical marriages, we can get pieces and glimpses of what a godly marriage should look like. Ultimately, our model when it comes to love, when it comes to marriage, our model is Jesus. Jesus is our model. He's our model for life and ministry. Paul's going to get to that. He looks back, look back at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says this, In your relationships with one another, for our conversation, in your, in your relationship with your spouse, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to approach your relationship with the person you're in love with the way Jesus approaches his relationship with you. And it's actually a command. This is not a suggestion. We are commanded to love people the way Jesus loves us. It's the standard of love. It's the model of love, to love others the way Jesus loves us. And it's a tall order, right? I mean, that's, that's a high call. How can we do that? How, did, how can we love others the way Jesus loved us? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us, look at verse 5 and 6 again. In your relationship with other, one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God Something to be used to his own advantage. Now, this is really, this is amazing. Jesus was fully God. And even though he was God, he didn't consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I like to say it like this, that Jesus had the God card, if you will, but he willingly chose not to use the God card. He left it in his back pocket, if you will. Never once did Jesus use the God card. Not one time in his ministry did he. Never in his ministry did he leverage who he was for his own sake. Jesus was the most important person in every room he ever entered. Jesus was the most important person in every conversation and in every interaction. And yet he never leveraged that for his own sake, for his own advantage. Instead, Philippians 2 verse 7, Paul says this. Instead, rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Rather, he made himself nothing. This is incredible that Jesus would do this. Jesus was God, and yet Jesus willingly chose to make himself nothing. Some translations say he emptied himself. The phrase is translated to lay aside or to render useless, to have no effect. Listen, I'll make sure I'm clear on this. Jesus did not give up his deity. Jesus did not relinquish his divine nature. He didn't temporarily stop being God while he was here on earth. No, while he was here on earth, he was fully God, fully God. But even though Jesus was God and he had all the rights and the privileges of God, and even though Jesus was fully deserving of all of the attention and the respect and the honor that is due God, Jesus emptied himself of all of that. He didn't use any of it to his advantage. Of all of those rights, of all the rights and all the respect that he so deserved as the creator of the universe, he laid it all aside and rendered it all useless. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? He didn't have to do that. Because he wanted a relationship with you and me. That's why. Paul says in verse 7 and 8, He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself all the way by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. No one else humbled Jesus. Jesus chose, made the decision to humble himself. 
Now, what did he do to humble himself? What did he do to humble himself? Did he come home earlier for dinner? No, it was more than that. Did he start paying attention during conversations? No, he did more than that. Did he start staying on budget to cause less problems in the marriage? No, he did more than that. Did he pick up the, school, the kids from school without having to be asked? No, he did more than that. What did he do to humble himself? He was obedient to his father's plans. He surrendered himself to his father's agenda. He died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. He put his relationship with us ahead of his own rights and his own respect. And he wants you and I to do the same. That's step number three you can take today towards making love a verb. Put your relationship ahead of your rights. Put your relationship ahead of your rights. When we show up in a relationship, our typical attitude, I know this is true of me, is we think to ourselves, well, I'm at least 50% of this relationship, and so I should get 50% of the attention. I'm 50% of this relationship, and so 50% of the things should kind of go, kind of go my way, right? I'm at least as, as important or as good as him or her. I have certain rights uh, that I can expect and demand. You may think, husbands may say, well, I make the money, and so I, I have certain rights. Wives may say, well, I raised the kids, and so I deserve certain rights. I've done this, or I've done that. Jesus didn't do that, right? See, there's this sense that Jesus had this dilemma. He said, I can either maintain my rights and get the respect that's due me. I can always be right. Jesus was always right, by the way. I can maintain getting my way. He could have always had his way. But he, couldn't, he wouldn't have had a relationship with us. Or he could dip into the world, in, into our world. He could step into our world. He could establish a relationship with us. He could give up his rights and his respect that he deserved. He, he couldn't have both ways, right? He couldn't have both his rights and his respect honored to him and have a relationship with us. When Jesus died on the cross for your sin and mine, he put your life ahead of his life. He put your forgiveness ahead of his glory. He put your greatest need and my greatest need ahead of what he rightly deserved. Jesus had to choose. He couldn't have it both ways, and neither can we. Listen, real love, biblical love, biblical love by nature requires sacrifice. To have the marriage you want, to stay in love forever, a part of you will have to die. A part of you will have to submit and surrender because you can't have it both ways. You can't demand your rights and have it your way and have a loving relationship at the same time. We've all watched people try to have it both ways. Perhaps you've tried it. I know I've had. I have. I've tried to have it both ways. But does it work? No, it doesn't work, right? And you may get your way. You may get your rights honored. But you weren't happy or satisfied. Neither was your spouse. I want you to watch this video of Andy Stanley. And he's going to tell us a story about how this kind of practically played out in real life right in front of his eyes when he and his wife were attending a baseball game. Watch a short clip. The other day, um, Sandra and I were um, leaving the ball field. Our, our two sons play baseball, so we're at baseball fields all the time. And we're heading back to the car, and there's a lady ta I, talking to her husband. I, I didn't know her, but I knew him, and I'd never met his wife, but I discovered this was his wife. And she's headed toward the parking lot. He's headed back toward the ball field, and she is giving him instructions as he goes. 
okay? And get the chairs and don't forget to get all the three chairs and get the bags and make sure the chairs and you know, there, and it's like, as she's over her shoulder, she's nah, 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 and don't forget. And, nah, 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 nah. and then there was something I don't even, didn't even understand about. He did it wrong last time and make sure you do whatever that was right this time. And then they separated. And then she turned and walked to the parking lot. And Sandra and I, I didn't even know Sandra was paying attention to this and we didn't say anything. We got in the car and she turned to me. She said, I can't imagine ever talking to you like that in public. I said, if you did, I would travel all the time. <laughs> I would take every speaking engagement. I would do, I would just, I just, as I listened to her, talk to her husband that way in public, it just made my soul just quiver, you know? And the interesting thing is this, listen, everything she said was right. He needed to get the chairs, he needed to put them in the bag, he needed not to forget to do whatever thing he forgot last time, absolutely right. And if I were to talk to her, she could probably explain, well, the reason I had to tell him is the last three times he left the chairs at the ballpark and we had to buy, I mean, and you know, if I heard her sad story, I'd go, well, everything makes sense. It all seems appropriate, way to go. But what an awful marriage it sounded like to me. I wouldn't want to go home with her. <laughs> I don't think he did. Now again, I, now let's just, let's just, here's what I want you to hear, because you can kind of spin this off in a hundred different directions. I don't know the whole story. This is what I do know. Somewhere along the line, she's learned and feels it's appropriate to be disrespectful of her husband in public, even though all the details are correct. You can't have it both ways. Now listen to me, you can spend the rest of your life being right, you can spend the rest of your life making a point. You can spend the rest of your life winning all the arguments. You can spend the rest of your life getting him in shape or getting her in shape, but you will not be in love at the end of the process. And you will support your, you know, your angle and you'll support your approach and, and you'll sit down with a counselor and you'll be absolutely right every single time and you still will have lost that thing that you cherish and want the most. Some of you have been married for 20, 30 years or more, and you're going, man, he's right, aren't you? See, we can't have it both ways, can we? We can't have it both ways, and Jesus was our model for life, and Jesus didn't have it both ways. He didn't come to be right. He came for a relationship. He opted for his relationship over his rights, and Jesus was willing to sacrifice his life for you, and that's the, that's the call. That's the call of love to sacrifice. That's what it takes to stay in love. There, there is no other way. Now I'll say a, a word to the husbands in the room. In Ephesians chapter 5, another passage on marriage, the Apostle Paul is again writing and addressing marriage. And I just want to remind the husbands in the room, in that book, in, in, in that chapter of Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul starts with husbands and says, husbands, you need to love your wives like Christ loved the church. We both have a role to play, though, don't we? And there's something in all of us that says, wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, isn't there something in all of us that just imagine when a, a couple is doing that, when they're both living for the other? That's the kind of relationship and marriage that God desires for you and me. That's the kind of marriage I know my wife and I want. It's the kind of marriage we want here at Genesis for you. 
And there are three steps. I'm going to remind you one last time. There are three steps you can take toward that kind of marriage. You can treat your spouse as more important than you, express interest in the things that interest them, and put your relationship ahead of your rights. What would it look like today if you made the decision to take those steps? Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you modeled the way, that you gave up your rights to have a relationship with us. Father, would you help us to do that as a church family? Would you help the marriages in this room? Help us to to treat our spouses as more valuable than ourselves. Help us to Help us express interest and concern for the things that interest and concern them. And Father, help us, to put our, help us to put our relationship and our marriage ahead of our rights, just like you, Jesus. Thank you so much, Lord. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.